Keep your finger in Romans chapter 1. Let's start here. It's the year 378 BC. Uh, There is a young man who has lived a, well, in the eyes of the world, a fun and lavish lifestyle. He's He's from North Africa, but he's moved to Milan. And the place where we meet him is at a point of despair. He's sitting in a back garden with his head in his hands because he feels totally spiritually lost. Uh, He's a philosophically minded young man. He's got big questions about who we are, how how we're supposed to live, what the universe is about. Is God there? What does the future hold? And for him personally, more than anything else, what can he do to change? He feels powerless to change. In fact, I quote him here. He says, I was tossed about and wasting away. And I was boiling over in my fornications. He was living for drink and partying and sex. And he felt empty as a result of it. And all alone in that garden, he began to grieve and cry and pray until he heard the the voice of a child in the adjoining garden. The child was playing and repeating a song that the little child had heard. It only had two words in the song. Uh, I could read it in Greek, but I can't pronounce it properly. So I'll just tell you what the two words are. Take, read. Take, read. Take, read. Read. And he heard the child sing and he and he prayed. His mum was a believer. He prayed, not knowing quite who he was praying for. And he heard the song again. Take, read, take, read. What should he take and read? Well, his mum, who was a believer, took apart the New Testament, the book of Romans. It was in uh, it was being kept out in the garden because you can do that in Milan in the summer. It was sitting out there in the garden. And this young man, Augustine, grabbed a hold and he, he just prayed randomly. If there is something I need to know, could you reveal to me what it is I should know? And he opened the book of Romans at random and he came upon the 13th chapter and the 13th verse. And it said this. Let us have decent. Uh, uh, sorry. Let us behave decently as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. What? That spoke right into his circumstance. And there and then, in that moment, he felt he'd had a spiritual breakthrough. All the gloom of doubt in Jesus melted away. He went round to see his friend called uh, Olympius and he told his friend the gospel all about how Jesus is the one we can be clothed in and be saved through and be transformed by there and then Olympus. uh, He got converted on the spot there and then and became a follower of the Lord Jesus. Now, Augustine, you may or may not know, has been pretty much the foremost forger and shaper of Western thought over the last 1500 years. And in that moment, his life was changed when he encountered this book of Romans. Let's fast forward, well, round about 1100 years to the early 1500s. And we're looking and thinking about a young German man who was brilliant but full of fear. He'd got a promising career in law ahead of him, uh, but he had got no spiritual answers whatsoever. He had a moment of crisis where he felt under threat. He He feared for what would happen if he died. And there and then he made a vow as best he knew in the sort of church age that he was living in at the time. He'll become a monk. That'll fix everything. But it didn't. It only made it worse. 
He became a monk and he tried to find God and he tried to uh, fulfill all the rituals and the responsibilities. In fact, later he would write, if ever there was somebody who could find God through monkery, it would have been him. But it left him more and more empty. And he found himself in the monastery, given a responsibility at the local university to teach through the book of Romans. He didn't get very far. He got stuck in the first chapter. He bumped into this amazing phrase, the righteousness of God. And up to that point in his life, he'd been fearful that God was so righteous and so holy, how could he ever have a future and stand in the presence of God? The righteousness of God made him, gave him cold sweats. I'm doomed. I know what I'm like. I'm utterly doomed. But then he suddenly realized that as he read that in the 16th and 17th verse of chapter 1, the righteousness of God speaks not only of God's holiness but of a gift that can be given and received where God gives to sinners, unworthy people, a righteousness not of their own, that wraps around them, that secures them, that can give them a standing in the presence of a holy God so that they can stand. Through sheer mercy, we get declared righteous, was this young man's discovery. And it was sweet to him. And he wrote this, he said, this passage of Paul in Romans became a gateway to heaven for me. Fast forward again, maybe 300 years later, another man, this time an Englishman. Uh, He was trained at Oxford, went to college there. He was deeply religious. He was so desperate to find spiritual answers that he formed something called the Holiness Club. He was mocked for it. Uh, They later became known as Methodists. They would go through a whole series of methods to try to be holy and make sure they can be in with God. But it just left him feeling more spiritually empty. So he thought, I must try harder. So he did what no sane person wanted to do at that period of time, which was travel across the Atlantic on a ship, uh, brave the storms and head to one of the 13 colonies, Georgia, where he would become a missionary to the savages, to the Native American Indians. The disaster was a, 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 a sorry. The, the initiative was a disaster from the beginning. And as he travelled over on the boat, there was a terrible storm, and it was just assumed that the boat would smash to smithereens and fall to pieces. And he was fearful. He was like, "What will I do when I face God?" And yet, there on the boat, there was a small gathering, a small brotherhood of people. For, they were known as the Moravians, who were singing songs of hope and joy in the midst of the storm with impending disaster. And he wasn't quite sure what it was they were talking about when they started to talk about the assurance that comes from knowing Jesus Christ as your saviour. He wanted it, but it didn't quite connect with him. He carried on to Georgia. It was an unmitigated disaster. Never was there a worse uh, missionary to the Native Americans as that. He returned home a broken and dejected man. He fell into his usual patterns, and so he would go to a fellowship group, Bible study, or something like that. And on one night... He went to a Bible study in uh, in the Oldgate area of London. And, well, it wasn't quite a Bible study. It was some simply somebody reading from the commentary, you know, the, the words that uh, had been written by that first, uh, second guy, Martin Luther, the German guy, about the introduction to the Romans. And this is what Wesley said about it. About a quarter before nine, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust Christ, Christ alone for my salvation and an assurance that he had taken away my sin, even mine. He had saved me. And that moment was the touch mark, the the, the springboard for a great awakening 
that totally reshaped not just the UK, but also the colonies the other side of the Atlantic and has changed Western society as we know it because of what God did that night. As you've listened to all of those, what is the one thing that they had in common? What was the thing that they had in common? I could have brought out another 50 stories. I could have talked about a guy who, stuck in jail, uh, read another section of the book of Romans, got amazingly converted, and not long after it, we have the book Pilgrim's Progress. I could have brought countless other stories. What was the thing they all have in common? Book of Romans. Can I tell you, and this is not preachers sort of picking it up and using excessive words, there is no letter that has been written in human history that has had more effect to the changing for the good of human history. The book of Romans, that, you know, if you open the Bible, you know, basically if you want to grasp the big message of the Bible, there are around about six books that you need to come to grips with. About three in the Old Testament, you know, Isaiah, Psalms, you know, Genesis, Exodus. And then in the New Testament, the book of John, probably Hebrews or, or Revelation, and Romans. And many would argue that when you let the power of the book of Romans loose in your life, the truth that it speaks of, the God who's behind it, it brings transformation. And we're about to embark on a journey, an adventure into this most influential letter that has ever been written by none. Let's just pray as we begin before we read the first seven verses. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you that you have been delighted to and have seen fit to transform people to transform your church, to extend your purposes to the ends of the earth through this letter. Lord, we realize it's a letter about the gospel of Jesus. And we pray as a church, like we prayed the other day during prayer week, that this would be a significant time for us individually, us in our family lives, us as a church together, and even this whole estate as we, week by week, over the next few months, open this book of the Bible, we pray that you would let loose in the power of your spirit the truth, the hope, the grace that is found within it. Lord, would you give us hearts to receive, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Brilliant. Have you still got it open in front of you? Let's read it together. Just the first seven verses. Just the first seven verses. Chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared, uh, sorry, was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are, include, uh, are among those who are called to be, belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And may, uh, may the Lord add much blessing to the reading of his word. So where is it? It is a letter, which means that there is a sender and a recipient and a content. 
And that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the sender, we're going to look at the center, and we're going to look at the sent to. Okay, so this really happened. This is historical stuff. Actually, there was a day when the Apostle Paul kicked the dog out of the study, pulled out his pen, licked the end of it, and started to doodle down, and he intended it to have an effect. I don't know whether you guys send letters very often. Um, nowadays, it's just short text and all that sort of text language. But if ever you were to sit down and write a letter, I'll bet it was because you want it to have an effect. And Paul did indeed. So, uh, well, here he is. Oh, hold on a minute. Where are we? So who is he? He's the sender. We know Paul a little bit, don't we? We've just spent a year looking at the book of Acts. But let me tell you, it was the, it's the year 57 AD. He's probably living at the house of a guy named Gaius in Corinth. He's been collecting up a gift to take back to uh, a financial gift to take back to the church in Jerusalem that have fallen upon hard times. But he's a man with a plan. His intention is to shoot back to Jerusalem. And in keeping with his passion and his zeal, he's saying, I want to get the gospel out further. Hmm. Where are the most influential places to go and where haven't yet heard the good news about Jesus? Need to get it out. So he plans to head to Rome and use Rome as a springboard to mission to go elsewhere. Okay, it would be a little bit like me writing from Buckley Walk one day on a day when I can't get here, writing to you guys to remind you of the gospel and say, remember, we've got a place we've got to go with the gospel, which is called speak. And in doing that, he's trying to remind them of the gospel and fire them up with why the gospel is so important. But he's also trying to prepare them because, you know, the thing that we've spotted, they'll have heard of Paul. What do you think they've heard of Paul? What sort of things were happening to Paul in the book of Acts all the time? So he was, a Christ, he was a persecutor of Christians, good. The Lord saved him on the road to Damascus, and then it sort of flipped round a bit. What did it look like for him to be doing Christian ministry? He was in jail, and he got persecuted. They know that whenever Paul comes, trouble comes. They'll have heard that about him. So he's going to write a letter to help them understand why he does what he does. In fact, we're going to see this next week. The place where he starts and begins is he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for the world. And by the end of the letter, he wants them to be so fired up and so confident that they are prepared to take whatever comes their way because of this gospel that is for all the nations. There's three words that are used to describe him here. Can you see it in verse one? This is still the sender. Paul, a what? Wrong. It's the word doulos. It means bondservant or slave. Now, I don't know about you. Uh, we, we can serve, can't we? Maybe you serve in church from time to time. When you serve in church, what you do is, is you uh, choose a little certain part of time that you're going to give and you hand it over, but you, you maintain control of your life. You don't have Steve ringing you up going, where's me socks? Where are they? Because, uh, hold on, no, I serve in church. No, no. But when you're a slave, when you're a bond servant, you've surrendered your life to another master. All of your life is about serving the purposes of that one. And here we speak of Paul speaking with pride in that. I'm a slave, baby. Can you imagine how that would have heard, uh, sounded to the Romans who aspired to power and a name and a standing? He's writing that and saying, listen, I'm coming and I'm going to totally flip everything on its head. The gospel that I bring is because there is somebody who is worth serving, who is a master and whom you surrender your life to. He's a slave. Now, it's worth me slowing down at this point and, and just, just asking you, how do you like to communicate yourself to other people? What is the best thing about your life and the best thing about you? 
Some of you have started a new school year this year, uh, this week. Some of you have started a new school, and you've got that horrible moment where you're going to meet people. How you present yourself when you meet a new person is a big thing. Some of you have been uh, looking for work and are going to be having interviews. Some of you are dealing with clients, perhaps for the first time. And you want to communicate the very best about yourself, don't you? Where does Paul start? I'm a slave. Wow, it must take a lot of confidence in something or somebody to be able to start there, mustn't it? I'm a slave. And he's proud of it because of who his master is. But he's not just a slave. Can you see it there? Paul, a servant slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an... Help me, people. An apostle, which basically means sent one. So this is God's gospel. He's been sent by the living God. The living God has something he wants to get be, be got out to the world. It's this word gospel. It comes up six or eight times in 17 verses, something like that. Um, God wants to get the gospel, so he's authorizing somebody to take it. The gospel, remember, is an announcement, a declaration of something that has been done. It is a monumental set of news. It is objective reality. And he's putting people in charge of the message to steward it and to take it out so they can clog up the byways, clog up the internet, clog up the airwaves with this news. Part of the way in which that is done is through this letter going out. Now, it assumes that God has a word for the world that is not to be changed, messed with, or tinkered with. So what we will do on a Sunday morning is we will have that word in front of us so you can see it. The one thing I'm not allowed to do is allowed to not tell you or to edit it. That's two things I'm not allowed to do. I'm not allowed to not tell you or edit it. Here is Paul with authority to go and take as a sent one out with this gospel. He has to deliver it. And that's part of what comes up in the third thing that we see about Paul. What's the third thing that he uses to describe himself as? Say, I'm just as stubborn as before the holiday. He's a slave or servant, called to be an apostle, and set apart. He is on mission. There's a compelling force behind him. And I can imagine that there are times of real nervousness for him. But make no mistake, he knows who he is. He's proud of the fact that I'm nothing more or less. The very best about me is that I'm a slave of Jesus. I've been authorised and sent out. And I'm set apart for this mission. I know my purpose. Now Paul knew his identity here and he lived out who he was. Question. Who are you? Who are you? First and foremost, when you strip all the nonsense away, who are you? What is your identity? What is at the core? What is, what is central in who you are? Not what are the little trinkets you add on because people are raggy, you get the buzz of approval or it makes you feel safer. If you belong to Jesus, you too are a slave and in some sense are sent out with this authorised gospel, a bit different to Paul, and you're set apart for the gospel of God. What he's saying here is, you're in this with me, you Roman church. Look at verse 5, can you see that? Through him and for his name's sake we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith 
And he goes on, and you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus. That's who you are. And this is the funny thing about identity, isn't it? You will behave out of who you think you are. Who you think you are controls what you do and how you live. So if you feel and think that you are worthless and people tell you that you're worthless and you choose to believe what they're saying, then you will give yourself to worthless things and you will degrade yourself. If you have an entitlement mentality and think that you are all that and you are owed by people or the state or the world or by God, you will do things that are full of self-righteousness, pride and treat other people as less than you. Because what you believe about yourself will shape what you do. That is so true of us as a church. Who are we? Who are you? It makes all the difference when we come in on a Sunday morning. We're not, we're not gathering here merely to, to do some sort of um, practice worship ceremony. We're gathered here today because of who we are if we're believers here today. If you're not a believer here today, then you're just as welcome, but make sure that the writing's on the wall. We're encouraging you, we're pushing you to a point of decision to decide, are you somebody who is going to receive and stand under this King, Jesus Christ? Now, you and I might have identity crisis, and that's part of the challenge of faith, isn't it? But Paul hasn't. And he says, you need not either. He says, I'm a servant, be a servant with me. I'm on mission, be on mission with me. Now imagine if you'd taken that into your week this week. You know, I, I can't help it because she's closest to me, but I can't help it. But, you know, I think of Bethany and she's gone into, uh, started a new school. And she went off with nervousness and excitement to a new school. And there were all kinds of things and threats and, and, and feelings. And, uh, you know, I'm going to meet people for the first time. And it's really encouraging because she got back at the end of the day and she said, I'd had a discussion because I told somebody I was a believer in Jesus. I had this discussion. So part of the way I've communicated myself is as a believer. But I also wonder, and maybe I need to have a conversation with her about this later, I wonder how much she took that whole thing to the bank. I wonder whether she stood in that moment where she didn't know anybody and everybody around it could be an enemy or could be a friend. And she was brought calm and hope and peace in her heart and mind because she knew that whatever they said and wherever they landed... She was a servant of the king with his priorities to live out. Can you take that into your next week? It's really hard, isn't it? I mean, can you take it in, in, into, your moment, into those moments of the week where people aren't, aren't treating you with fairness and you feel slighted? Can you take it into your week when, at the times when you're tempted to feel proud in front of people and then you go, ah, I'm a slave. Before the king, I'm nothing more than a slave. How dare I get on my high horse? Can you take it into those moments like I tried to yesterday, and my wife will tell you I, I, I failed pretty miserably at this, in those moments where I descend into self-pity? Will I, will I grab a hold of that noose? Uh, noose? Uh, uh, that news? <laughs> will I grab a hold of that news that tells me I am Jesus' slave and there's no higher privilege? I... I'm on a mission and set apart. Get over yourself, you loser. Will I do that? Will I do that? Paul's saying, 
Listen, I'm the sender, Church of Rome, but when you look at the big backdrop of the fancy architecture and the power systems and the military might and all the sophistication and allurements that are there in Rome, I'm telling you who I am and I want you to stand in that same thing. Servants on a mission for Jesus. That's the sender. Second of all, that's the sender. What did I say was the next bit? If you have a letter, you have a sender, you have a content or, or, or center. Hey, nice to see you. We have a, a sender, we have a center. Let's have a look at the center. Okay, somebody read for us. Give my voice a rest. Somebody read verses 2 through to 4, please. Nice and loud for us. That'll do, just gone into five, that's absolutely fine. Jesus Christ our Lord. So let's just just hit that again, let's do it the old way with it. So what's this gospel about? What's the centre of the message? The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God, or or, or more, um, there's... um, uh, if you look in the footnote, there's a m- probably a more accurate translation, which basically is, he was declared son of God in power, almost like one big phrase, son of God in power. It was all about, it's about Jesus, verse 4, and who through the, uh, through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. And in case you've missed that, Jesus Christ our Lord. What is the sum and the centre of this letter? What is the thing that Paul can't wait to start talking about? What is the thing that he wants the Roman Christians to be utterly clear on? What is the thing that he thinks will empower growth and change and boldness and hope for the future what is the thing well it's not a thing what is it jesus now listen you've heard me yell this one and if it's getting old get used to it because the only thing that we are going to declare from our church is not our excellency or our overcoming power or our potential we are going to declare the identity and the saving power of jesus that is all we ever will do. That is, honestly, I'll, I'll chuck myself in front of a bus if ever I do anything other than that. We will declare Jesus. You can take Buddha out of Buddhism and it won't make any difference. You can take Confucius out of Confucianism and it won't make any difference. You can take Muhammad out of Islam and it won't make any difference. You take Jesus Christ out of Christianity, you have nothing. Because our hope is in him, who he is and what he achieved. He's the promised one. The Lord Jesus. Oh, God the Father couldn't wait to send him. You know, when you get to, you get the story, don't you? Uh, uh, well, you don't. That's the thing. When you see a, t- a trailer for a film that's coming up, you get the best bits. You get the snippets. And you get sort of a bit of a feel for what the whole story is really about. But it's not until the real thing comes that you put it together and you can see the whole deal. And that's what we have in the Old Testament, the prophets. It was promised. We got the snippets. We got the highlights that there would be a king and that he would be the one who, who, who brings God's people into God's presence. He would be the one who crushes the enemies. He is the one who establishes his people. He is the one who deals with, uh, with wrong and sin. And then Jesus comes in. And well, what do we find out about him in verse 3? Regarding his son who as to his human nature, so he is, uh, he is divine, but took on a human nature at the incarnation, was a descendant of David. So he would be a ruling king 
The eternal Son of God, born into this world. I, do you know, I sometimes struggle to believe that. Do you? I look up at the sky and I see how vast the universe is. And I think how awesomely big that God must be. And he was prepared to put on a skin. He would leave eternity, past, present, future. He would leave so many of his attributes. He would become hurtable. He would become weak. He would enter into a womb. And he would come and walk amongst those whom he loved. Wow, we, re- we believe ridiculous things here, don't we, in our church? It is utterly unthinkable, this. It happened. It happened. And the reason we know that it's happened is because of what happened in verse 5. Uh, sorry, verse 4. And who, through the Spirit of holiness, was, de- was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is the turning point in history, the resurrection. Now, can I remind you that we, we're hearing from the Apostle Paul here. He never met the Lord Jesus in the days of his flesh, in the days of his weakness. He didn't meet him before Christ went to the cross. He only met him when? After the resurrection. When this Lord, this one who is different now, this one who is installed with all power and authority, knocked him from a horse and said, mine, and I'm going to the nations and you're going to come with me. That's the turning point in history. The resurrection means that Jesus is the rightful king because he rules from heaven. He is our judge because he is alive and qualified and unavoidable by any person with breath in their body. He can save because the cross has been validated by the resurrection. And it's all summed up in this wonderful little four-word phrase, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I love this about Paul. He'd fit right in and speak because he just states it. He just says it. Oh, we've got, we've got visitors on the roof. I suggest we might even just, just leave them be. They'll probably get bored or die. One of those two. Either suits our purpose. Don't know. Unless they're going right over the top. Cool, we'll carry on. And this is what I like about Paul here. He just states it as fact. You can't make Jesus Lord. He just is. He is Lord whether you recognize him or not. You can deny him, you can mock him, you can hide from him for a while. But you will one day meet him because he's the resurrected Lord. He is son of God in power. It is folly to be to run from him. And this is the good bit. You can't make him Lord. He is Lord. But you can welcome him as your Lord. And that's what we're called to do day by day as we walk by faith. Welcome him as our Lord. See, in Rome, the people he was writing to, there were all kinds of lords. They looked impressive. They looked mighty. They had power to, influ- to bring about influence and change to a degree. But they're puny compared with this Lord. And Paul wants them to know that the centre of his gospel is that there is a new sheriff in town who's going to the nations and his name is Jesus. Do you think Speak could do with that message? Well, quickly and finally, if we've seen the sender, we've seen the centre, what about the sent to? The Romans. He starts to talk about their experience. Let me read verses 5, 6 and 7. In fact, somebody read for us verses 5, 6 and 7 again before we wrap up. 
his name's sake, we receive. Among those who are called fallen rain, who are loved by God and called grace and peace to you for our And this is the danger, isn't it? This is the danger. The danger is, is because we're reading a letter that was written in the past about a work that Jesus did in the past, that we can think that it is stuck in the past. Paul is here trying to remind them that he is the present Lord with them now by the way in which they are being changed and mobilized and saved in the moment. So that's one of the things that we do here when we gather on a Sunday morning, is we encourage one another with a reminder that the Lord who we're speaking about is present and what's called imminent, near, with us. Okay? And I wonder whether you can hear that whole feeling and push with Paul here. It's sort of like pulsing and living and moving. And this is a story that's on the move. It's on the march. The, the end is written, but we haven't quite got there yet. Be part of the story. Now, news does that to you, doesn't it? When there's news, it sort of ripples out there and it crosses boundaries and borders and it brings change. Uh, I think it's pretty bland, but apparently the iPhone 7 was out this week. Uh, but that's cr- travelled over the internet and over the telly and in the papers to the point where at the prayer meeting of the day, there was a couple of the fellas, I think it was um, uh, yeah, Weston and Dean, were like looking at the, oh, what's the iPhone 7 going to be like? What's the iPhone 7 going to be like? Oh, how can I adjust my budgets and hide from the people who keep an eye on how I spend that I want one? It's, you know, all those kind of things, you know, it just, news does that. And news is on the move here and it has changed them, verse 6, and you who are among those who are called to buy an iPhone 7. No, it doesn't say that. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus, issuing in real change in their life. They are part of this story of Jesus and the gospel going to all nations. There is something to be received, experienced, that brings change, hope and a future. Now you know that. We listen to that and we think about that every time we gather and open the Bible together. But the thing that I want you to focus on here is what it seems is one of the key themes here is this call to the nations. That this is something for absolutely everybody. I sometimes wonder whether this is the gospel for speak. Because it seems like it's the people looking and speak for almost anything but this thing. But this is the gospel for absolutely all the nations it is the thing that will fix the, every global problem and every personal problem. This is where, at the points where the politicians are left wringing their hands going, what on earth do we do? This is where the gospel comes in because it's God's power to transform and change the world. So whether you're an atheist or an agnostic, a Hindu, a Muslim, whether you're a secular Westerner, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're a failure, whether you're a success, whether you've been hurting and been oppressed, whether you're flying high, whether you're young or old, rich or poor, you need Jesus as your Lord. Now we will show that we believe that as a church family when we're prepared to offer this gospel to absolutely everybody in the most unlikely of places, even here in Speak, even here in Speak. And we're always told to get excited about something, aren't we? Uh, it was earlier this summer, it was the Olympics. The Olympics came and then they started the adverts for the X Factor. Now the Paralympics are here and now there's going to be some new series on TV. 
We're always being told to get excited about something. What is the next big thing? And Paul would say to the Romans, and he'd say to us, this is the next big thing to be excited about. This is it. It's summed up here by the word grace. It tells you how to get it. It's a gift. Through him and for his name's sake, we receive grace, verse 5. Verse 7, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is a gift, something that is done for you. This is what Jesus has done. It it can't be deserved. You can't do it for yourself. You don't have to buy it. It is offered for free, so it is utterly offensive. It will offend you because you can only receive it. You can't give anything in payment for it. It's deeply humbling. And although I meet loads of needy people in our estate and in our area, the idea of being given something for free... And being told you can only receive it for free is deeply offensive to them. It's deeply offensive to me. But Paul had a track record. He knew what he'd done. He had attacked Christians. He had been complicit in the destroying of lives. And he knew he was undeserving. He knew that he couldn't make get a standing with God when he met the true, holy, risen Lord Jesus Christ. And now he celebrates that he stands in grace. That's what Augustine did. That's what Wesley did. Uh, That's what Martin Luther did. They rejoiced that they stood in grace. The only thing you need to do to get grace is own the fact that you don't deserve it and can't um, earn it. Simple as that. Now, I just need to drive this a little bit more because I think there's something that that sort of infects us as believers sometimes. We say, yeah, yeah, I know that I've been saved by grace. But that person over there who's wronged me They're not as deserving as I am. That doesn't work, does it? Doesn't work at all. I was trying to come up with a stark way to communicate this, but the reality is, I've been a Christian for 25 plus years now. I am more in need of grace today than the day I first became a Christian. I am more undeserving today than I was the day I became a Christian. Because the day I became a Christian, I heard the news and I heard the grace and I saw the holiness of God. And every day since, I have offended that gracious offer. Every day since, I have taken the mick out of all that's been offered to me. Every day since, yes, I've grown, hopefully, to be more a little bit more like Jesus. But every day I've offended more. And every day I'm more indebted to his grace. Every day. So it means that though the form of my sin and my rebellion and my hatefulness towards people may take a different form to that of Adolf Hitler, I am as just as undeserving of this grace, this welcome into this gospel and all that Jesus has done. I'm just as undeserving as Adolf Hitler. So if I start playing the games of saying, well, that just goes to show that I haven't got that grace in my heart. All you have to do is realise that you contribute nothing but your sin. And this strange change happens. You move from trying to make your own standing and stand in your own way to faith. The obedience of faith, it's called here. And the nations start to celebrate that we are totally surrendered in total dependence. So they start to sing together, God shouldn't accept me, but through Jesus he does. They start to shout together, God should judge me, but he judged Jesus so I can go free. 
and we start to have a change of heart and rather wanting to rebel against God, we want to obey him, we want to follow him and we want to trust him and we want to sing and we want to celebrate all, verse 5, for the praise of his name amongst all the nations. He gets all the credit and I'm gripped to love him. We love his name and we love his mission. And Paul's writing this to these Romans to say, this is you, this is you, isn't it? This is your story. Live in it. Live in it a little bit more. Remember who you are, verse 6 and 7. You, are, you belong to Jesus. You are loved by God. You have grace and peace through what Jesus has done. So I suppose as we just wrap up now, we just need to say, fasten your seatbelts, church. Fasten your seatbelts. Because we're going to take this news more into us. And the apostle is going to open it to us. And in the power of the Spirit, Lord willing, over these next few weeks and months, we'll be being reshaped and reformed and filled with faith and filled with love and experiencing the love of God and wanting to move out in mission because of it. We're going to be energized and changed. Paul is coming to Rome. And now his letter is coming to us. So be ready as he brings the call of Jesus. Let's stand and sing together.